Welcome to the show. Uh, today, my guest is Dr. Haley Dickinson, uh, who has been studying and working in the field of reproductive biology for over 18 years. Since graduating with a PhD in reproductive biology, Dr. Haley Dickinson did postdoctoral research at the Monash Immunology and Stem Cell Laboratories, then in the Department of Physiology at Monash Uni. Haley, Haley led the Embryology and Placental Biology Research Group at Hudson Institute of Medical Research for nine years. Uh, Haley worked for a short time within Dota Spas, developing as their scientific advisor the Nurture Organic Skincare range for mothers and babies. Then, in 2018, she founded Eat for Baby, a company dedicated to creating generational change in health, one pregnancy at a time. Haley's name is attached to around 100 scholarly articles. Uh, she's had interviews on Captain and the Gypsy Kid, which is a podcast. Am I correct? Yes, it is. Yep. Yeah. And then uh, interviews with Beauty Crew and uh, Marie Claire. So welcome to the show. And that feels like a weird thing to say to my sister. <laughs> I did wonder when that part of the introduction was going to be included. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that is quite a funny introduction from you, actually. It's, I mean, it's not what our relationship is based on in any way. Yeah, no. Um, yeah, but yeah, no, I did and do it was all really, that stuff. Yeah, it was really strange going through and like, fucking hell, she's got a fair resume on her. <laughs> <laughs> like almost 20 years studying and that there's around 100 scholarly articles with your name attached to it. That's very fucking impressive. Yeah, you know, it's a funny thing though, right? Like when you're in the research space, that's that's what everyone's doing, right? So that's just that's mm-hmm. just this thing. That's just that's a really key outcome measure uh, to maintain a career as an academic. You've got to be putting out a lot of publications. But when I tapped out, uh, it turns out like no one in the real world has actually read them. <laughs> 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 you know, so you kind of go, well, what was the point, right? Like, and, you know, and that's part of, as you know, you know why I'm not doing it anymore. But that was one of the things that contributed. You know, you're just producing all of this stuff. Um, but I was driven to change things for people. And when the people don't even have access to what I'm doing, uh, partly through my own fault, obviously, not being that guy, not being publicly facing, not making the effort to translate the science that, I, that we were doing uh, into something that was relevant uh, to the general public. Mm-hmm. But, yeah, it just became a thing I had to do to maintain a career and I thought, nah, there's got to be something else, something something better, something more. <laughs> <laughs> so could you elaborate a bit on why you left the... Because I've got that question written down, but that was for later. So, like, uh, yeah, why the shift from institutional research to, a, you know, your approach now, which is kind of, I guess, a little bit more freelance or media-driven than um, research-driven? Yeah, good question. Um, a couple of years ago, I would never have thought that this would be where I was. It was not. It was never part of some grand plan that I would be an academic for a while and then I would tap out and do um, a more freelance consulting, build a company. Uh, that was certainly not something that I had ever planned. I actually had a massive crash and burn uh, in my academic role 
um, you know, one of the funny things about being a scientist and being an academic is, you know, there are people in there have different skill sets um, and different passions. And mine really was the discovery. I really loved designing the experiment, executing the experiment, getting the data, thinking about what the data might mean, then running to my supervisor and sharing it with him and kind of going, oh, what do you think this means? And then, you know, you end up with way more questions than you had at the very beginning. And and I really loved that. I loved believing that I was sitting right on the edge of knowledge and that what I did expanded what we knew. That was really, uh, that was a real adrenaline rush, right? You can, you can imagine that. This, the highs that come with those discoveries are huge. Um, but as you get good at something, uh, particularly in the academic space, uh, you move up a, the proverbial ladder. And I did that. I followed the pretty straight line. You know, I did a science degree at Monash. I did my honours. I did my PhD, postdoc. You know, I really just was on a straight line. That's really kind of the way I lived my whole life, I suppose, which you have a lot of insight into that too. Um, I didn't really think, I suppose. I didn't really, and that's a strange thing, I think, for an academic to say because we're thinking all the time. But I didn't really think about it from a more deeper subconscious kind of level. I was just ticking all the boxes and as you tick the boxes academically scientifically you're publishing lots you're getting grants you're doing all these sorts of things uh, you end up supervising a lot of people managing people and actually doing less of the science and I got to the point where I was very rarely in the laboratory uh, I was relying on you know students and postdocs uh, all of them you know excellent but not with my years of experience um, in the lab generating the data and because they did not all necessarily share my raw passion for the data sometimes I didn't even get to see the data <laughs> like it would be weeks or months after an experiment had been finished and the student would say something in a meeting like oh yeah you know by the way da 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 I'm like oh like where was that like that's that's what I'm doing this for right those those moments and so those yeah. moments became rarer and rarer and then as you start to be in a position where you're not kind of getting that kickback, you're not getting that rush, right, uh, and you start to feel a bit like you're giving all this stuff for something that it doesn't even actually fill you up anymore. And in the whole climbing the ladder, you know, you lose a marriage, you have a baby first and then you lose a marriage but you just keep stay on that straight line so you just keep producing papers you keep getting grants you keep turning up uh and you you're absolutely not listening to your body at any point eventually uh, it screams really loud and mine did i remember the day of sitting in my office uh this was you know cody pop was two um and just my heart it was just, it was all I was aware of, just these flat out palpitations in my chest. And I had not been physically exerting in any way. And anyone who suffers from anxiety will be like, well, duh, you know. Um, but I had not ever experienced that before. And I spoke to, you know, a colleague down the hallway and they were like, how long has this been going on, H? And I realised it had been going on a really long time and I had just not been paying any attention. So once I acknowledged that, my body was talking to me, I started to listen to other parts and there was a whole heap of 
my physiology that had started to crumble. You know, my menstrual cycle was all over the shot. Um, I had extreme PMS. Uh, just, I just was unwell. I was broken. You know, I had pains in my legs, pains in my feet. I was tired all the time. Had no energy for anything outside of what I considered the most important thing, which was turning up to my job every day. And so I took some time off, you know, as someone who had been an academic for a long time, had never diverted from the straight and narrow. I had a lot of sick leave, like years of sick leave. <laughs> so I, I decided to use some of it. And I saw a psychologist and a GP and started to do a few things. You know, basically they all said, you know, it's essentially it's psychosomatic. You know, you're stressed, you're, um, you're suffering from anxiety, uh, just, you know, go see a psychologist, you know, we recommend some medication and off you, off you go. Uh, I mean, you know me well and we are not particularly comfortable in the medication space. So I declined respectfully hmm. um, but was left with no other option. You know, it wasn't a – these are the numerous health options available to you to try and f- – heal um which what's your preference what do you like uh, and of course i'm speaking now about my ideal uh medical system which does not exist but it's one where <laughs> you know they they know who you are they and if they don't know they ask the questions and they are they i don't know who these they are i think really it's lots of different practitioners that are before you in this in this um fantasy land of mine and they have all of the data all of the evidence but they interpret it their way based on their background whether it be western eastern um alternative you name it and you choose you choose the one that aligns best with your values of course that didn't happen and so i was left unmedicated because i didn't want to because that did not align with my values um but with a health condition that i really was really starting to be really debilitating so i enjoyed the psychology i enjoyed the discussions i enjoyed the discovery that was in those sessions, you know, I find psychologists are really great at articulating uh, very clearly and succinctly what I would ramble on about for a good 10 or 15 minutes of, you know, feelings and stuff that I didn't really have the words for. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, I got better, right? <laughs> I spent a few months <laughs> with the psychologist. I wasn't going to work all the time. Uh, I was not constant, constantly aware of my heart pounding in my chest. So I went back to it because not at any point in any of this did I process that maybe this wasn't the work that I wanted to be doing anymore because it wasn't fulfilling me and it didn't actually align with my core values anymore. I didn't process that yet. Uh, So I went back to work. I think I lasted about another nine or ten months, Um, went through a a grant round, uh, which is – probably the worst part of academic life for somebody like me who is, I'm very emotional and I was always, was and have always have been and still continue to be emotionally attached to the work that I do. I, my heart is in my work. And, you know, the internal grant reviews would be about pulling your work to pieces, right? And it's all in, it's all in the spirit of improving things. Um, but it's really stressful. It was always really, really stressful. And so went through another round of those and sat crying with a couple of older colleagues just thinking, 
I don't want to do this. I don't want to feel like this all the time. I don't want to neglect my family for whatever this is. Uh, and so I was late to my lab meeting as I was having that epiphany moment with these two older colleagues. And so I arrived to my lab meeting, apologised for being late, said, um, I, I'm leaving and I don't think I'll be back. Obviously crying and probably not that articulate. <laughs> <laughs> that was the message that that's what I remembered from that moment. <laughs> and I know that we all do a really good job of manipulating our memories. So um, yeah. that is my yeah. version. My version. <laughs> Those, the others sitting in the room may have a different version. <laughs> and I, I acknowledge that and respect theirs. <laughs> and so I didn't go back, you. I am... Um, yeah, I, yeah, and I have not gone back, and that was, you know, that's about two and a half years ago now. So, so I, I did not leave, leave. very professionally. Um, I sent probably two of the 150 emails that I really needed to send because, you know, I was at the peak of my career, right? So I had a lot of collaborators all over the world. I had a lot of students that I was responsible for, experiments that we were, that we were in, ethics that we had. You know, the, the whole thing was at top speed mm. and I just walked away. So I had a great postdoc, Stacey Ellery, who's now taken over the majority of the work and, uh, you know, it's still going. It's still going really well. You know, she and the team are kicking great goals. Um, but for me, <laughs> that departure was really the start of a pretty steep decline. Uh, I spent a lot of time rocking in the wardrobe, wondering who I was because I had always been a scientist and then I just discovered that I couldn't really do that anymore. <laughs> so, am I Arthur or Martha? And, yeah, I, you know, I really I lost my, my identity in that short term and felt that I had no purpose, that I couldn't even imagine what my contribution to society might be, uh, forgetting all along that I had a, freaking awesome daughter who who was enough if that was all that I had achieved and continued to achieve that was enough but you know this there's all hindsight in some of the things that I'm saying now right because at the moment there was none of that I think the lowest day for me cute was watching Cody Pop play with her toys and I and she was giggling you know having a hoot of a time you know what she's like and I felt nothing no joy for her, no joy for me, just nothing. So that was really when I sort of stepped up the psychological help and, you know, started to actively seek more help. And so I started to see Chinese medicine practitioners. Um, you know, as I said before, my hormones are all over the place um, you know, stress will do that to you. So we're neglecting your body for a really long time. So, you know, I started acupuncture and herbs and there's a lot of magic in, in that style of medicine. It's slow, uh, but it was all about me. <laughs> uh, and look, I loved it. And that was really the start of the coming out of the hole. Um, and fast forward, a little bit of time you know I had the idea for eat for baby deep in that hole uh, trying to find what my contribution might be trying to I think 
partly it was trying to salvage all this knowledge that I had that I didn't, I didn't just want to walk away from all of that. And so I remember talking to Tim about supplements, you know, prenatal vitamins, which uh, all women in the developed world and overwhelmingly now too in the developing world uh, where possible women are encouraged to take a prenatal vitamin. So before, during and after pregnancy to help meet their increased nutritional needs. Of course, overwhelmingly prenatal vitamins are synthetic versions of vitamins and minerals. Uh, not so much the minerals, but the vitamins. And there's not much evidence for them actually doing very much. So I found myself thinking, can we improve prenatal vitamins? Can we, you know, we know that at the nutritional needs over pregnancy change you know it's pretty dynamic you know the fetal requirements are quite different in the first trimester versus the second and the third so maybe the prenatal vitamins needed to be more dynamic maybe they needed to change over that nine month period so I was thinking about that talking to Tim and then I just said Why don't, what if we just did it with food and I just kind of let that hang in the air for a minute for both of us just to pick it up I think and when you're Surrounded by everybody being encouraged to take prenatal vitamins, you start to believe that maybe you can't achieve it with food. Mm. Maybe our food is so trash now that you, you can't actually do it. Maybe it's not even possible to eat enough green leafy vegetables to get enough folate in the day, right? But I didn't believe that thought. <laughs> I thought that, that can't be real. So I thought, scrap the prenatal vitamins. We're going to do this with food. And fast forward, you know, quite a lot of time now. It takes a really long time to recover from anxiety and depression and build a new business when you've never built a business before. <laughs> uh, but we're doing it and we're kind of at the point now where it's nearly a real thing. We have been making food and uh, we'll be selling food really soon. So you can totally eat enough green leafy vegetables to get enough folate. You don't even actually need to eat that much. Um so I'm a big fan of real food, as you know. So I think I think that answered the question, how I went from there to here. You know, I have always wanted to do something that helped women. And what I realised in research was that it was taking too long and there were it was too much about building my career versus helping women. Mm. Uh, and now out here I get to just help women every day. You know, I feel like every day when we drop our social media posts, and it's not just me, of course, it's a team of us now, um, we're helping. We're, there's someone out there who needs to hear that piece of information that we're sharing. And so that feels really, really good. Hmm. Well, that was, that covered so much ground. Yeah, well, that was like um, 15 minutes of me talking. Yeah, that was great. <laughs> <laughs> Let's see if we can get another one. Um, so just on some of those last points you were making, so in terms of getting the right amount of folate yeah. from green leafies, is that related to the quality of the green leafy vegetables? Yeah, it does matter. It does matter where our food is grown. And I think, I think intuitively we know that anyway, you know, if we're destroying the soil that our food grows in, um, it's not going to be able to give us what we would hope and expect from the soil. And you know way more about soil health than I do, so I feel like this is a loaded question. Um, 
But yeah, look, I'm a massive fan of organic and everything Eat for Baby does will be, all our food ingredients will be organic because A, I believe that it is better for the food stuffs themselves. You know, we know that when plants are grown using organic or even, you know, this concept of beyond organic um, agriculture, the plants have to protect themselves against pests. And so they produce a whole array of different chemicals, including flavonoids, uh, you know, some of the pigments that we enjoy in our foods. They produce more of those uh, as their defence system. And so the benefit for us is that there is more of that than in the food that we eat from those plants. But when we use pesticides, uh, they protect the plant from pests and so the plant does not need to protect itself from the pests so it does not produce those much higher levels. So that's just one example of lots of reasons and obviously the pesticides themselves uh, horrific and mm. there's a lot of evidence uh, not so much from this country but particularly from the states uh, where their glyphosate usage is is really high um, that those people who live in areas where glyphosate is regularly sprayed uh, have very adverse pregnancy outcomes compared to the general population so we know that these pesticides are a reproductive toxin and they are impacting on um our capacity to build humans, build healthy humans. So it's a really big part for Eat for Babies to not be a part of that. Um, so do you get more folate from an organic leaf than you do from a regularly grown leaf? I mean, folate means comes from the Latin, I think it's Latin, folium, which literally means green leaf. So um, green leafy vegetables are a great source of folate. And whether you're eating organic or not, you are going to be getting folate if you're going to be eating a heap of green leafy vegetables. The, I think the jury is still sort of out on whether you get more folate from organic versus normally grown um, produce. Uh, but what you certainly don't get in your organic is that pesticide residue. You know, organic farming uses pesticides, um, but the part of having the organic certification is that they use different ones. They're certainly not using glyphosate and they must not have any pesticide residue on the food. Whereas our standard agriculture, uh, there are what are considered, and if you could see me, I'd be doing, you know, exclamation marks around the side of my head. There are uh, safe levels of um, pesticide residue that is allowed to remain in our food. Mm. I think the problem is, you know, maybe that one exposure of that small amount of pesticide in its in and of itself might not be that problematic but when we are exposed to different toxicants many many times every single day uh, they accumulate right these things uh, often accumulate in our fat stores so we just keep them there we just hang on to them and when you're a fetus trying to grow and develop all of your organs if you're exposed to these things uh, they are going to change the way your organs develop. Uh, and, yeah, as I said before, there's plenty of evidence for those sorts of things. So, so nutritionally on the macro and micronutrient level, there's not a lot of evidence to say that organic produce is more nutritious than standard grown. However, if you go deeper than the micronutrients and you start looking at these flavonoids and the phytochemicals and all these other much smaller um, but critical to our health components of food, you get way more of them in organic food. Right. And then there's also the um, the other impacts from 
standard farming practices in that it's the health of the land that's improving with organic it's the health of the soil it's you know it's these other benefits as well it's it's not just directly or it's it, it's not even solely health for humans it's health for everyone using these other methods mm, yeah i absolutely agree with you and you know because as you said you know you referred to our, our vision which is you know improving uh, fu- health of future generations one pregnancy at a time um, for us to ignore the health of Mother Earth in our quest to uh, improve the f- health of future generations is just you, you couldn't achieve that. It's not possible. It's not possible to uh, improve human health without caring for and improving um, Mother Earth's health. And, you know, we've done a really bad job of caring for her. Um, we're continuing to do a really bad job of caring for her. So, you know, it's one of these interesting things, right? So when you start talking about organic, uh, the population are quite split on its value. Mm. Um, you know, it's expensive, right? It's expensive to be a certified organic producer, which I think is a real shitty system because, you know, it's already more expensive because you've got more manpower to care for your crops because you're not just crop dusting. Mm-hmm. Um, but then you expect them to pay a heap of money to get a certification so that people will pay more money for your stuff. Imagine if we just turned the system on its head and we made those farmers that are using lots of pesticides, uh, we had them have to achieve certification uh, for the amounts of pesticides that they're using. I feel like that would very rapidly change the way our food is grown. It's like we're punishing the good guy. It kind of bugs me a bit. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, um, but, you know, I was thinking about that because, you know, as we start to cost out our eat for baby food, right, people go, oh, H organic, Ooh, it's expensive. I'm like, yeah. Um, eat for baby cannot be a cheap product because of all of the things that we are seeking to achieve. You know, we we don't want our packaging to hang around. So we're using home compostable, plastic-free uh, pouches. They're made out of cellulose. And so they'll uh, break down in a home compost in less than 30 weeks. Gone. So carbon dioxide, water, and biomass. You could not separate it from the rest of the compost. No toxins. Awesome, right? But that's an expensive pouch. Hmm. Um, but I figure... If our objective is improving the health of future generations, then every single decision we make has to have that at its back, at its core. You know, the future, the health. We cannot achieve health of future generations if we're all swimming around in plastic. So the packaging had to disappear. Um, equally, the food it's got to be organic and it's got to be coming from farmers who understand and respect the needs for regenerative soil. Because unless we keep, unless we give them back, uh, there will not be healthy soil for these future generations that we're talking about uh, to produce their food. Mm. So that becomes expensive as well. Um, so every, you know, and we want to have, we want to know the nutrients that are in the food. And so this is another one of those things that people expect and assume, but it's actually not a real thing. So in Australia, we have this database of foods and the nutrient content of those foods. It's a massive database. A whole heap of foods were tested, but it was done back in 2010. And it has not been 
updated since 2010. And so when someone produces a food, they will enter all of the ingredients that are in their food into a software that accesses that database and it spits out a nutrition information panel, which we all see on the back of every product of food that we buy that's packaged. Mm-hmm. And so that nutrition panel represents an estimate of the nutrients in that food based on what was measured in those ingredients sometime back before the last before 2010. Hmm. So to me that means nothing. That means that that nutrition information panel is just there because the legislation requires it to be there, not because it actually provides any valuable information to the consumer who's buying it. So another commitment that we've made is that we will always measure the nutrients in our food. So they go, we make our food, it goes off to an independent laboratory, they measure it, they do the nutrition information panel, they do a fat profile, they do fibre, they'll do all the vitamins, the minerals, and then they'll send us back those data and then that will be what we build our nutrition information panel from. Hmm. So it's real, right? So that you know when you're picking that up and if I tell you that there are there's 10% of your daily folate in that particular product, you know that you're getting 10% of your daily folate because it's that yeah. of food. Right. Ah, that's 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 very. Yeah, that's a that's a serious shortcoming of the nutritional information. Uh, uh, system, you know. Yeah, it, yeah, it is. Like to, it really is. So, like, that's not even you know, like my mind immediate immediately went to like soil erosion and the diminishing of minerals and shit in most food sources and that wouldn't be calculated in um maybe most of the most of a particular crop no longer comes from a certain area now comes from somewhere else so the nutritional profile is going to be completely different there too yeah yeah i mean we did a little experiment because you know i have all these ideological things right these things that i believe should be you know the the way that i think we should do things but because it's so they're so unusual some of them i there's that element of self-doubt that says maybe you're just barking up the wrong tree to go like maybe this isn't really a thing so we ordered some brazil nuts from several different companies and some of them came from several of them came from the same country you know and others came from other countries so we kind of had this nice mix of um, different brands, different sources, and we, of course we had all of their nutrition information panels on those packets, and we also had what sort of claims they might make. So, you know, some, particularly Brazil nuts, they'll say eat two a day and achieve all of your daily selenium. So selenium is a mineral, and we've talked a little bit about this already. Uh, we find it in the soil, but as you have nicely articulated to me, that it's not just about its presence in the soil, it's about the need for the microbes in the soil to help get it up and into the plants. Yeah, and that's um, research from Dr. Christine Jones, just for anyone listening who wants to look at it. Thank you for the additional information. Look at you. Anyway, so we got these data back on the selenium content of this batch of Brazil nuts that we had sent off. And I had that moment of joy and devastation simultaneously because joy that I was right, devastation that every one of the companies had falsely led the people on their packaging and probably not necessarily deliberately. You know, I'm not trying to sit here and bag mouth people who put food in packets, right? They just do what the standards require them to do. You go to the database, you extract the data and you stick it on the back of your panel. 
The interesting thing was that clearly these different companies were using different source information. And there are, of course, lots of different databases. You know, I was referring to the Australian one, 2010. There are American ones. You know, all the different countries have food nutrition databases. So depending on where your home company is, I suppose, uh, you might get different information of how much selenium uh, is on average in a Brazil now. Anyway, what we found was that all of the products had overestimated how much selenium was in their Brazil nuts. And in one particular example where they had said you needed to eat one to two Brazil nuts to achieve your daily requirement of selenium, you actually needed to eat 18. Right. So just let that hang in the air for a minute, right? So if you know that you need selenium, you're going to go and buy a Brazil nut. And that packet tells you, Eat two, you got what you need. But you have, you need to eat nine times more than what you've eaten to actually get what you need. And we wonder why so many of us are suffering from health issues right now because our food is actually not giving us what we're being told it's giving us. That's wild. That's that's a huge uh, disparity between what we're being told and what the reality is. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, I've given, of course, I've given you the most extreme example. The best performing, uh, you only needed to eat double. <laughs> 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 only half off. <laughs> yeah, right. So, you know, so like I said, it was joy and devastation at the same time. So it's like you are onto something and this, your mission is it's important because you can actually do better. You can a real difference for people. You know, we may end up saying if we can't source good Brazil nuts with lots of selenium, then our selenium will be low. So you will not be led to believe that you are getting all of your selenium in our food if you're not. That's that's all I can offer, right? Because at this stage of our business growth, I don't know what you really call it, uh, our evolution, I do not have the power, funding, I don't know what you want to call that either, to change the way we grow our food. That is that is not where I am yet. I'm I'm the guy at the end making the food, selling it to the consumer. But eventually I will have that power, I will have that backing, I will have that momentum, and then we will be able to be those people who are influencing the way our farmers harvest, grow, look after the soil because without it we're not getting what we think we're getting. Mm, I like so we got onto... Yeah, well, you need to be able to trust. I feel like it's all about integrity, isn't it? It's all about trust. What's What are you doing when people aren't looking? But we got on to talk about all of that because of the cost. And so, you know, if a baby's an expensive product, because we do all of those things, we also batch test for bacteria so that pregnant women can rest assured that this packaged food they're buying uh, is free of pathogenic bacteria. Pathogenic bacteria are the ones that cause disease. There are actually not very many of them. And, you know, we need a lot of bacteria good guys they are you know we have more bacteria than human cell in and on and around our bodies Hmm. but those pathogenic ones are pretty nasty and they can have low it's a very low risk but it's a very serious consequence if a pregnant woman does get um e coli or salmonella or listeria poisoning uh, during pregnancy it can lead to um stillbirth or you know miscarriage of the pregnancy so nobody wants that and so that's the sort of thing that it's another layer of assurance that we're offering. You know, we're measuring the food, measuring the bacteria to make sure that 
before we sell any of our food, the batch test comes back and says, yep, it's free of bacteria. And again, I feel like that's one of those things that people expect anyway, <laughs> but it's just not, <laughs> it's just not standard to test the food. Most food producers test their environment um, on a semi-regular basis. Anyway, so all those things add up to a really expensive product. And so one of the things that I've lost a lot of sleep over is the fact that I'm producing a product that will only be affordable to a pretty small proportion of the population. Uh, and so I'm neglecting a whole heap of people who really need, really need the help. Mm. And so I've reconciled that with myself uh, with several things. First, those of us that have the means um, must do the best we can. And if it costs a little bit more for those of us to create a, f a system of food that is safe, clean for the individual eating it and for the planet that it comes from, we must do that. We must pay the price with our back pocket at the moment because we will not change the status quo if we don't demand a better product. Mm. And so the other thing we do is don't just put all the profits into our back pocket and start driving around in Porsches and Lamborghinis, right? Um, we've committed that 50% of our profits will go back to the people who really need support, um, whether that is funding grants to do more research, whether it's supporting community groups on the ground who are looking after you know, women in our, in our shelters. Uh, basically, we will just find the people who are already in those places and say, what do you need? Uh, you know, we'll give women the opportunity to donate a pouch of balls uh, to a woman in need so that, you know, we're doing it and our customers are doing it as well. Because I find that people do actually want to help. People really do want to do good. They just don't necessarily always know how and so I guess we're going to try and create as many of those opportunities for people as possible. Mm. Okay. Um, yeah, so I mean, as you, so no, no, go. go. No, I was just going to say, as you know, yesterday, you know, we haven't even officially launched any of our food products yet. We've launched a couple of recipe eBooks, um, and we've been donating the profits of those, and we've made some batches of hero balls. You know, we're like deep in COVID time right now, so. Um, think what you like about the source of COVID and, yeah, I mean, let's not get into a COVID conversation, but uh, it is having a huge impact on a lot of people. Yeah. It has changed a lot of things for everybody. And so the, our first batch of hero balls is what we've called them. Um, we made them and we donated them to essential services workers and healthcare workers because we figured, you know, they're turning up every day, putting themselves in the front line, all their protocols have changed. So, you know, they went to the police and the ambulance and uh, people at the Monash Health, so we went to the Ninal Intensive Care Unit, the Obstetrics and Gynecology Department. Uh, all these people, the fireys, all these people just turning up, doing their work, um, even though it's way harder than it ever has been before. So our second batch I delivered yesterday uh, and we changed tact a little bit and instead of our essential services, we donated them to... Uh, the Avalon Centre, who distribute clothing and bedding and food and stuff uh, to the homeless on the streets of Melbourne. 
And yeah, that was a pretty raw experience for me, right? Because really for the first time in my life, I get to be that guy. I get to be that guy who turns up and gives stuff to people um, for nothing in return. You know, it's like this relationship. You know, and the homeless will never know who I am. They're unlikely to know or anything about Eat for Baby. Um, and we just did this cool thing. And I know a lot of people have been doing a lot of things like that for a lot of their life and they'll be like, yeah, it's good on you to go about time you fucking caught up. But um, <laughs> it's really cup filling. Like I was overflowing with raw emotion yesterday and just felt so good. Uh, so anyway, that's what, that's Eat for Babies, that's what we're doing, right? We're giving it back. Uh, we're not here to build a monopoly and live some sort of version of a wealthy kind of life. It's about a richness in a really different way. Yeah. So those those balls that you mentioned, they can you talk about them a bit? Yep. Uh, so our first product range is going to be balls. I guess people would maybe know them as bliss balls. Uh, before that, probably protein balls. Um, these are not a protein ball. There is no added protein powder, which you'll find is in every single other protein ball on the market. It is just a mix of whatever they want to do, and they add a heap of protein powder in it. Uh, core to eat for baby is that we will always use whole real ingredients and you'll always recognize them. Uh, so these balls in particular are called, as we call them, our hero balls. And they're, uh, our ball base is basically duts, duts. Oh, what is a duck? That is a combination of a date and a nut. (laughs) 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 Classic. Uh, dates, nuts. Uh, nut butters, seeds, and some sort of source of flavour, whether it's chocolate, um, apricots would be our fruit as well if we wanted to do it. We've got a beautiful apricot delight sort of ball. Um, So the Hero Balls are a chocolate, coconut, nut, date and seed ball. So they are delicious. They are packed full of fibre, heaps of uh, vitamins and minerals, plenty of fat, Uh, And I know that fat makes a lot of people uncomfortable, um, but it is an essential macronutrient. Uh, You know, it is the basis of every single cell membrane in our body. Uh, For women, it's critical in synthesizing our hormones. And so too many of us avoid fat. We take these low-fat options, which just means you've got to be eating more sugar because they've got to put something back in there when they take out the fat. So always whole real ingredients. And so this batch of balls, you know, we made them, packaged them. Well, I didn't make them. I've got an awesome manufacturer, Gary, BY's Food and Brayside, uh, who's been really cool. You know, I, I think you'll see that as I've talked. I'm not just – we didn't plug Eat for Baby into the existing food manufacturing protocol. Um, I've changed lots of things about it. And he's been super patient uh, even though he's been in food manufacturing for like 40 years <laughs> and then I come <laughs> along. <laughs> Rookie, right? Never manufactured yeah. food in my life. Hot shot off the block. 
right, right, you know, come down for my ivory tower. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, we're learning together, right? And it's it's really nice. You know, he can he's starting, I think, to see the value in me changing things up, uh, just demanding a little bit more. I said, you know, it's just he's being brave. You know, the expectation is that you run a clean, safe kitchen anyway, so just be brave enough to prove it. You know, put your data out there, right? And and he is, and um, and he he he's doing both. He's running a clean, safe kitchen, and he's brave enough to show it uh, with a test on every single batch of food. So uh, he's a good guy. So anyway, so he's been making the balls, and you know, he's he knows that we've been donating these ones, so he's really looked after us in terms of squeezing it in these other production runs, looking after us with price and stuff. And he's like, he people like being a part of these sorts of things. These good things, these authentic, genuine, goodwill kind of missions. Mm. People really want to be a part of it. What I'm yet to prove, and my haters come at me about it, is that this is actually an effective business model. Uh, you know, we we give away all of our recipes. You know, and a lot of people are like, but that's your IPH. You've got to you got to keep that. I'm like, well, that's they're just ingredients that. My awesome sister-in-law, Ellie, has put together and created these amazing flavor sensations out of. We don't own the ingredients. Uh, and the idea that because our product may be cost prohibitive for some people because of those standards that we've talked about, does that mean that they just can't they just can't get access to the food? I mean, it just seems outrageous to me. So on our socials, we share the recipes uh, and we've got the ebooks that I talked about, and in those ebooks, you will find recipes that are in production for us uh, in the manufacturing kitchens. So, you know, the haters will say, "Well, you know, anyone can come and copy you, um, take your idea, whatever." Um, I say, "Bring it on," because we're doing the right thing. We're doing a good thing, and we're trying to help as many people as we can. And I believe that we, as a society, are moving way more towards that. So I think that's partly a, um, please let me be right. Please help me. <laughs> help me help help me show the haters that they were wrong and we were right and people do genuinely give a shit um, about doing the right thing. Yeah, I think I think more and more people are willing to, you know, brave the the new territory of giving a shit um and it, it does take just more and more people to do it and then you know it it then becomes less and less scary to do the right thing and easier to do it you know because more things will then shift in that in that direction yeah exactly it's you know it's a groundswell of people doing it and then you shift the status status quo don't you that becomes the new normal Mm. A way higher standard. So, speaking of the norm, um, what are some of the issues with the science and the media around women's health and specifically pregnancy? Well, that's a massive question. Um, I think the biggest issue is that we don't... We don't ask women often enough what's going on for them. 
-hmm. We tell them what's going on for them. Uh, And for too long there has been this history of women are just overly emotional. Um, It's just their emotions and it's not real. You know, and we've got this other issue where women apparently need to be protected. Um, We're really vulnerable, um, which is just total bullshit. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Look, we like being loved and we're all for kindness, but vulnerability, when we choose it, fine, but don't categorise us as this vulnerable bunch of people that need to be protected from and, you know, and what I, I guess what I'm talking about in terms of that protection is that women have been protected from medical research, which means they have been excluded from it. And so really since the 70s, it has been very rare to have women in early phase clinical trials for drugs, for example, pharmaceuticals. And it all came off the back of some really shocking discoveries around some of the medications that were given to some women and they were teratogenic so they were impacting on the development of the of the embryo of the fetus and so off the back of that in an effort to not have that happen again instead of insisting that the drug companies do a way better job of early screening of their medication they just cut women out of clinical trials so women of reproductive age were just not a part of clinical trials for about 30 years. And so that means that we know shitloads more about men than we do women, just their general physiology, how they work, how, we, how we're put together and how when we put things in, how they impact on how we work. And because, you know, we know women have a menstrual cycle, uh, so over the course of 28 days, uh, that's the normal uh the average dangerous words aren't they to use things like Mm. that um you know back in the day our menstrual cycle was beautifully aligned with the lunar cycle being 28 days in length um that is that doesn't happen anymore um we are there are so many things that have impacted on us in terms of our artificial light uh that we you know we'll stay up later get up later so we're not really connected with the daylight cycle like we used to be, uh, the toxins that we're exposed to, all sorts of things are impacting on, on our menstrual cycle. And so we're, we're no longer synced uh, with the natural cycles of, of the planet and her moon. And so that's why I struggled with the normal average menstrual cycle words because it's actually not normal or average anymore, but it's, it is our... It is our natural state. It's just that we're just not, many women are not there anymore. Mm. Uh, And so because of that, though, because of that menstrual cycle, uh, if you think about research and we're trying to understand the impact of a particular compound, for example, um, on a cell, science is really about reducing as many variables as possible. So you want to try and control the environment as much as possible so that you know whether what you've done has an impact or not. And because female, whether it be cells or the whole animal cycle, uh, we're really difficult to control. 
experimentally. <laughs> there might be funny arguing that we are difficult to control, period, and I would say stop trying. <laughs> but so this creates a huge issue for scientists, right? Uh, you've got this cell that responds differently over the month to the hormones that it's exposed to. So when do you take your cell, right? When, at what stage of the menstrual cycle, well, it's menstrual cycle in a human, but, you know, an estrus cycle in a rodent, for example, when might you take your cell for your experiment? It's just too fucking confusing, right? It's too fucking hard. Well, I don't know. Just, let's just use males. Mm. They don't suck. So a lot of our even early research, our early science, when we're doing it in the dish, we're not even in an animal yet, we're just using cells, that gets done on male cells too. So all the way back, our science is built around the male system because he's more straightforward. He's, so his experiments, when you're doing experiments cheaper, uh, you have to do half as much. You're not trying to, you know, do a male and a female version, just do the male version. That'll do. That's just, that's the way the words build anyway. So um, don't worry about those cycling 50% of the population. <laughs> Clearly being facetious. Like it's fucking outrageous. Uh, and so that's what's happened, right? And so that is been the basis of science for a really 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 long time and fortunately the conversation is changing and there are incentives now for scientists to include female cells female animal models uh, and females female humans in clinical trials because we understand now that if we don't do our experiments in women but we prescribe the medication to women, uh, we better bloody know what it does to their system or we end up with some real tragedies. And um, there's a situation that I'm going to be really scant on the details, but a sleeping medication uh, to help people sleep through the night. And it was prescribed to men and women. And that they found that women who were taking this medication were having an increased incidence of car accidents. And they went back and, you know, did their due diligence finally and discovered that women metabolised this drug at half the rate of men. And so women were waking up in the morning still fully loaded hmm. on this sleeping medication and they were having car accidents because they were fucking asleep still. And I keep swearing around this cute because it's it's a real problem and it shits me that it's just another example of us being dumb. Um, and so, you know, so they went back and they did all the early studies, which I would argue should have been done way before we started prescribing it to women. And, yeah, they discovered that the female liver metabolises this particular medication at half the rate. So women now are prescribed half the dose. And oh, that works for them. But that is the only medication that I'm aware of. Things may have changed because I haven't looked into this for about 12 months or so. But that is the only medication that has a differential prescription for men and women. And I don't know about you, but I find it very hard to believe that that is the only example where a female body might metabolise something differently to men. Yeah, I was going to ask. Do you, do you know of other compounds where the woman metabolises it slower or, or quicker? I think there are lots of examples that we would know anecdotally. You know, we know that women 
I can handle less alcohol. Not that that's a prescription medication, obviously, but you know that is women are advised to have less standard drinks per hour, and that is for the same same thing that they are metabolizing differently. Uh, I am not mm. aware of other compounds off the top of my head, but I have no doubt that they are out there. And you know the other cool, incredibly interesting thing about women, and I really wish we would look at this as an opportunity for discovery, not a pain in the ass of science, is that women are different across the month. So there might be things that we are better able to do in the first half of our cycle than we are better able to do in the second half. Mm. And how powerful is that? You know, I mean, imagine what what we could do, what we could be if we had a better understanding of how our stuff worked. I was going to say shit, but I changed it to stuff, hence the stuff. Um, I mean, we're incredible, powerful things, right? And, you know, our physiology is begging to be connected to the natural cycles of the planet. I mean, that is so cool. Uh, but it's just it's just not where we're at. We're, I just feel like we're not asking the right questions. Hmm. Have you looked yeah, into other or like like you're talking there kind of about like circadian rhythms and I'm guessing there are other things along the same line um, like the natural cycles of things um, are you aware of some of the things that are interfering with that like you mentioned before um, artificial lighting do you know others yeah I mean we don't live in connection with the, those that sun cycle anymore mm. Um you know, I guess another major cycle that we don't really connect with anymore is the seasons, right? Um, but we used to. Um, and so these things, you know, a lot of humans are struggling with sleep. <laughs> uh, we struggle to sleep, even though it is a fundamental, critical part of our biology. Mm. We can't do it very well anymore. And that is because of our disconnection to that circadian rhythm that day night cycle and one of the worst things we're doing for ourselves is exposing ourselves to just to too much light and that can be just from light in our houses in our homes but now more than ever we've got this tiny little screen that's pumping out blue light um we take our phones to bed you know so people who work in the sleep space they refer to this concept of sleep hygiene and it's not about having clean sheets <laughs> or a clean body before you go to bed. Um, it's the things that we do in the lead up to going to sleep, the things that allow our body to prepare for sleep. You know, we're not just a, we're not a light switch. We're not on and off. There's this preparation uh, for sleeping. And so it's about, you know, reducing our fluid consumption a couple of hours before sleep so that we're not disturbed in the night uh, to use the bathroom. It's about not having light, you know, that screen exposure. Ideally, we would be monitoring our lights with the sun. So as the sun goes down, we would be dimming our lights so that we're not exposed to bright lights anymore. Hmm. And that impacts on our pineal gland, uh, which is where our melatonin comes from. And so we get more melatonin being produced, uh, and that is what helps us sleep. And then in the morning, we make up. We need to expose ourselves to as much light as possible, preferably, obviously, natural light. 
we need to move. And these are then signals to our body that the day started. But these, you know, these are such basic things, right? And you and I have both had, have, I'm going to say have, um, vulnerabilities in our mental health. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But the things that help us the most are those basic things, right? It's the getting up, moving, sleeping well, and eating well. Mm. Uh, you know, I don't know if you're familiar with Zach Bush. You're familiar with Zach Bush, right? Um, I just listened to an interview he did with Charles Eisenstein the other day. Yeah, look, he's a he's like my new favourite because um, he's talking about these really basic lifestyle choices. Um, but he's also a hardcore scientist. So he's doing the work in the lab as well to really understand what our food choices and how we eat and when we eat uh, impact on our physiology and our rhythms and our connection to Mother Earth. Uh, when this podcast, you know, hits the big time, he's your man. You want to talk to him. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'll add him to the list. Add him to the list, yep. Definitely dream guest. <laughs> yeah. Did I answer your question? Uh, yeah, yeah, you did. Um, I've started taking tryptophan. Do you know anything about tryptophan? Tryptophan is an really important in our production of our neurosteroids, right? Um, you know, one of the richest sources of tryptophan is the placenta. Right. The, the richest source of tryptophan is the placenta. I'm trying to remember. So you're taking me back to my David, my supervisor for a really long time. He did a lot of work on tryptophan. Okay. Tell me why you started taking tryptophan. Uh, I heard that it is, um, both, uh, like a relaxant, like a, mood regulator kind of thing and helps with sleep so i've been taking uh, two of these tablets um maybe like 20 to 30 minutes before i go to bed and i've been having great sleep get out yeah like well improved from where it's been for quite a while so it's interesting to know that tryptophan we can't make it so we've got to get it in our diet okay uh so if you did not have if you were not taking it enough and now you've started supplementing then that will definitely be being useful to you because like i said it's important in our neurotransmitters serotonin mm-hmm. um but also melatonin mm. which is why you are seeing the benefits you're seeing and, you know, melatonin is, you know, it's great for helping us get to sleep, but it's also an antioxidant. So it's really useful for us to kind of go around and clean up the free radicals um, that come from our oxygen usage in our body. This is, And this is, again, I'm tripping down memory lane because this is exactly why David was interested in tryptophan um, because of its, yeah, free radical scavenging capabilities. But that's cool, Ryan, that it's working. Yeah, and that's also interesting that it's 
an antioxidant because that'd be helping a lot as well you know um i'm a regular smoker um and i spend on spend a lot of time around i don't know computers and shit like that i don't know whether that sort of stuff interferes with um uh oxidative health within the body um but yeah having the antioxidant properties within the tryptophan would also be helping that's 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 good to know yeah um you know there are lots of people who would argue that the time in front of our computers and the emf coming from our wi-fi and stuff is a huge issue for us Mm. completely Throwing off lots of our, lots of our cycles. Yeah, but lots it, of our physiology. Yeah, it's hard to know with that stuff though because it, it seems like there are very few reliable sources coming out saying yeah this shit's bad. It almost always seems like, uh, middle class white women are the ones that happen, <laughs> happen to be talking about. EMF fields and shit like that. (laughs) (laughs) Look, I I don't disagree with you. And the source of information really matters. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely does. Um, The trouble is, you know, that it's really hard to know where the truth lies sometimes. Uh, You know, if you don't know how to get into the scientific literature and validate one study against another, you'll be able to find something that validates your opinion. Mm. Um, You know, scientists are human beings, right? So they are just as vulnerable to bias and uh, perverse incentives as anybody else. Uh, I say that and I will qualify it and say that not all scientists um, are that way inclined, but Scientists, you know, we're just people. So anywhere where people are involved, things can get a little bit murky, I think. Mm. Uh, You know, as I talked earlier, you know, about my scientific career, you know, there was a need for me to maintain a job, right? I was, it was my responsibility to fund my own work and keep the money coming in for my team. And so when you're on a particular hypothesis, an idea, um, if you make a discovery that does not align with where you're going, you you know, it's a big thing to go, oh, I'm just going to completely divert my whole research program because the hypothesis that I've been running was not been proven. Mm. In fact, it's something completely different. And so it takes a really brave person uh, to tell that story, I think, and there are lots of brave people and there are lots of people who do tell that story and it's that's where the integrity lies in science, to be willing to say, I was wrong all this time um, and this is where we're going now. But the trouble can be that the funding body is not as brave and if you've been on a track for a long time and they've paid you a lot of money to do this particular work in this particular direction because this is where they think it's going and that's where they want it to go, and then you end up saying, oh, actually, it's not going that way anymore. Um, it doesn't always bode well for you and your financial security of your research laboratory. So there are lots of challenges 
in maintaining integrity. And, you know, our technology just keeps changing too. So we make new discoveries and that doesn't necessarily mean that the discovery that came before was done poorly or was wrong. It was just done the best it could be with the technology and the knowledge that we had. Uh, forget how we managed to talk about that, incentives, quality of science. Yeah, so, you know, what you read on Google, um, you really need to get to the source. Yeah. And But it's difficult. It's difficult for Joe Public to read a scientific paper, like I said to you at the start. No one read my papers. They, I didn't write them for Joe Public. Mm. Um, I wrote them for my colleagues and for myself and my team, and that's a real problem because the taxpayer is paying for our science. So I'm not alone when I say it is on scientists to start sharing with the public. And the scientists need to work harder to better control the media, I think, in the way they talk about the science. Is you know, there... All... Yeah, sorry, go on. No, no, I was just going to say, you know, everyone wants a headline, right? So everyone wants to click. It's all clickbait, so... Uh, a little media piece written about a scientific publication is rarely going to have the detail, the 20-year history of how that piece of work came to be about and the 20-year future of actually realising what that discovery might mean. Yeah, right. And, like, you know, we've got so many... uh, avenues of immediacy in our world today you know we've got the convenience of food whenever wherever we want we have the internet with everything available everything's immediate and so things that still take time like despite the technology science still takes a fucking long time to actually make sure that you've removed all of these variables and you actually know what you're talking about. But we're not allowing the space um, necessary to get that good science out. So we keep getting headlines of, yeah, you know, from day to day, you'll read a different headline about the effects of wine. You know, one glass of wine a day will help you live to 120 one glass of wine a day is going to lead to liver cancer and they're probably both right but you've got to there would be other things at play there um do you yeah do you think that that would be an issue with the uh the kind of um distribution of the information through the media that these aren't like science isn't the sexiest pursuit because it takes a lot longer than people are willing to give it. <laughs> uh, it's so not sexy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, it is super slow, and you've you know you've caught out some really important things there. You know, any given study on its own only matters for the people involved in that study. You know, we are all so different in the way we live our lives, the choices we make, the environments we find ourselves in. That a study that happened on a population of women in southern Italy will never mean anything for a population of women living in Mount Martha. Mm. 
Um, there are just so – on every level there are important differences, cultural, social, environmental, uh, you know, and then you get into dietary and, and just genetic, the whole thing. They're so different to each other. But our media – it's not, it's not actually, it's not the media's fault. This is actually, this is one of those things. It's not a fault finding mission. It's a fact finding mission. Mm. Um, those details don't appear enough. You know, there are lots of long form articles and they really do cover everything off. And that is, that is much always going to be much richer content to read because you do, you get the whole story. Um, but I think, for people who are looking for, you know, those silver bullets, right, the golden nuggets, the key things that any of us can do to optimise our health, they are the same for the population of women in southern Italy and the women in Mount Martha. The details will differ, but the fundamentals are exactly the same. And they're the things that we've talked about. You know, it's moving, it's eating, it's connecting with the earth, um, and it's the thoughts that we have. Uh, science science can't tell that story uh, for the entire population because there are just the model isn't built around so many variables. Mm. Um, you know, I was talking about my utopian medical system before, and it's would it would be built around trying to capture as much data around all those different things that matter. Um, that's the way the healthcare system needs to be developed. It can't be healthcare and research as separate entities. You know, the for us to have meaningful data for people on their day-to-day lives, you've got to have this much more integrated, embedded research within your healthcare and not just in your conventional Western healthcare system in this country, for example. Um, it's got to be embedded in all of the healthcare modalities that people choose so that you're getting, at the end, you get a picture of a human being who made these choices under, you know, with the support of their healthcare providers, whoever they might be. They made these choices. Uh, they, they had these symptoms and they went in for healthcare. They made these choices for their treatment and then these were their outcomes. That's very meaningful for the individual but then if you get enough of that, if you get enough people recording the symptoms, recording the treatment modalities and recording the outcomes all in the same way, which does not happen, mm. but if everybody's collecting the same pieces of data over a long period of time for lots of different people, you start to get the answers because you start to be able to separate your data out and you go, all right, well, I'm a 39-year-old woman. Uh, I exercise this much I you know I do you can start to find people who look like me and then you can start to go these are the things these are the interventions that worked for a person who looks like you and I don't mean on my physical attributes you know what I mean my demographics the Mm. the numbers the the weights the heights the ages the general disposition you know I'm a I'm an introvert I'm now turns out I'm a bit of an anxious person um, all those things, the things that make me who I am, they matter for the healthcare that I receive and how effective it will be to my outcomes. So we've got to ask, start asking way more questions of way more people in a way more systematic way um, and then we'll start to get to the sorts of answers, the sorts of 
information that people might click on that might be useful to them. It won't be clickbait though. It's it's long, it's expensive, and it completely changes the system because it's not entirely embedded in Western healthcare, which is essentially the model that owns research. So, you know, we, there's very little research about Chinese medicine right, in I this was... country, in this country, right? Okay. So, you know, in China, they've got a very long history and it is still their core healthcare. Sure. Um, and so they know, they know that it works. Um, but here, you know, it's considered a bit fringe, it's a bit alternative. Uh, and so the, the Western medicine people might try and pick it up and do some research you know, I'll give you an example. Maybe about a year ago, there was some research done looking at acupuncture before an IVF transfer. And so a group of reproductive biologists, so pretty Western-trained uh, researchers and medical practitioners, uh, brought women in, uh, did the acupuncture on this particular point, and then did the IVF transfer. Uh, it didn't work. Uh, anyone who has sought Chinese medicine assistance in either their reproductive journey or any other journey would know that, of course, that was not going to work because that is not that is not the fundamental business of Chinese medicine, a single needle on a single point on a single occasion to get you your result. Mm-hmm. That's not how it works. And so, you know, th- we can very easily butcher uh, genuine healing health modalities when we don't ask the questions the right way, when we don't understand the core fundamental business of how it is done. So, you know, Chinese medicine isn't much about the environment and the time and the, you know, it's just, you know, I have acupuncture every month and I walk in and the place smells lovely, the staff are lovely, it's like I'm visiting my family, the room is dimly lit that I go in, they, you know, she asks me questions, the same questions all the time. Uh, she takes my pulses, she looks at my tongue, all of these measurements that she's taking and then depends on where I am in my cycle as to where my needles go and then I'm left on the bed with the needles in for about 25 minutes. Uh, you know, that's a whole uh, process, that's a whole environment that's so many things that have got me into the right state mm. to then allow my body and those needles to do what it needs to do. Uh, it's not a stark, white, brightly lit medical suite um, with one needle being stuck in and then, you know, it's just, it's just so different. And I think we're starting to understand that it is all of those things that matter that create the healing environment, not not just the one thing. Hmm, that's interesting. Do you, do you know of any other... Um uh, Western-based research around Chinese medicine? Uh, I don't have the details on others. I mean, look, we, we're trying to do better. Yeah. Um, trying to ask the question, try to ex- trying to establish the collaborations to be this much more cross-health modality uh, research. I just think that it is... So different to the way we've done it for so long that it's sort of requiring a bit of a change of the guard. You know, the older, I'm running the risk of upsetting people here, but you know, the. <laughs> You're absolutely the, <laughs> allowed to say the old white man 
in yeah I, in the I, that, in the rooms yeah that's really what I want to say yeah. that the the older demographic of scientists who is arguably should have already retired um but has chosen not to fine um likes it the way it is yeah <laughs> uh and you know what if I was maybe in that demographic maybe I would understand that a little bit more because everything just is just as you planned it, mm. as you wanted it. It's there for you. And so, you know, I think there's this, I think the change of guard is happening though. Um, and, you know, there are more women in there, nowhere near as many women as we need to be. And, you know, I'm an example of a woman who was in there and tapped out because it's hard in there. Mm. And, you know, I, when I did tap out, that was one of those things that I chewed on for a while. I was like, you've just left it broken. Mm. You know, you, why didn't you stay in there? Fight. Fix it. But, you know, I did that for years and got fucking nowhere. Um, and at some point, you got to self-preserve, I think. That's it. Got to pick your battles. Got to pick your battles. And so I'm just doing it a little bit from the outside now, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, but so, yeah, I think with a change of guard, I think, you know, I think generally women like to work in teams. Uh, and so that really opens up the opportunities for science because you bring in, you bring in the Chinese medicine specialist, someone who's been doing it for 20 years, 10 years, whatever, Um Someone who knows how to set up the whole protocol, and then you start asking your questions, not just take that one bit. Hmm. So, um, do you think that there's a, um, a propensity for men to kind of do solo research, or? Like you mentioned there that, that the the women like to mm. work in teams. What did you mean by that? Yeah, I think women are God again, I'm in dangerous territory here. Uh, um I feel women are I feel it's better to ignore any of the sensitive people that might be <laughs> focus on the one third that love you. Yeah. Ignore the third that gonna hate you anyway. That's yeah. right. Um I think women are better able at acknowledging when they don't know something. Okay. Uh, we don't just speak what we don't know. Mm-hmm. And I think I'm talking about I'm sort of bringing in a bit of the mansplaining, you know, the man always knows, right? I think, and again, I said this before, you know, we need to listen to women more. You know, we, we're the carers, we're the nurturers, and I think that's where healthcare needs to be coming from. Uh, I think that maybe the older guard of white men um, did less of that, I think. Uh, and there's a lot of ego that gets in the way of science. Uh, and, again, I, I feel like that is usually sits in the lap of the male sex um, the women just generally just actually want to be helping out, not trying to be the star of the show. But, of course, what that means is that you've got a lot of women doing the work, but the head of the laboratory, the man, 
uh, is taking the credit. Mm. Uh, and that happened a lot. I saw way too much of that. Um, so I just think that there will just be a more balanced, genuine acknowledgement of who's actually doing the work, uh, not just the guy who sits at the top. Mm. Uh, more women working together and just asking the question and giving the answer. You know, it's, I think ego was one of such a, such a big barrier to moving science forward because if you're wrong and you've hung your, you know, your status on being the expert in that area, that's a bit of a blow to the ego. Mm. Uh, yeah, I just think I think I think generally women have their egos more in check. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and you know things have changed. You know things have changed so much. Yeah, over the last twenty years, you know the ethical requirements of research have changed. You know people have been doing science for forty, fifty years when they started. Just do whatever the hell you wanted. You know, the ethical, the bureaucracy around science was it was it wasn't really there as anywhere near as much as it is now. So you've got people kind of going, oh, you just just go and do it. Like, okay, but there's twelve months of getting ethics and talking to the community and making sure that everybody's comfortable with us doing this work now. And but again, I think that's where the richness is. That's where the richness comes from. Talking to the community. Um, what do you need? What do you want? What are your barriers? Because I think we sit, and this isn't necessarily a male-female situation, we sit in our ivory towers having all the answers, right? And we just sit there and bark recommendations and regulations at people. This is how you should be doing things. This is what you should be doing. This is where you will seek health if you do these things. Mm. But health isn't necessarily one of the core values of lots of people because they've they don't even know where they're sleeping tonight or how they're going to feed the family tomorrow, let alone what they're going to feed the family, just whether they will actually be able to do so or not. And so until we're on the ground um, really understanding the values and the belief systems and the genuine life circumstances of people, um, our research will always fall short, no matter who's doing it. Hmm. What do you think is some um, changes that can be made um, to kind of help spur on some of these, uh, you know, looking into alternatives yeah. and, and being a little bit less ego-driven? I think we need to decentralise our research. I think it needs to come back into the hands of the community groups. Because, like I said before, you know, the Italian situation is very different to the Mount Martha situation. So, you know, I'll just tell you my real solution. So it's um, called Mandala and it's, it is what I described before. You come in and we spend a couple of hours with you asking you the questions, getting to know you, what's important to you, why are you here, what are your goals. So much more goal-orientated healthcare not the healthcare system's goals or the researchers' goals, but the individual's goals. What do you want to achieve? 
and the goal may very simply be I would want to sleep more than two hours a night. And then you introduce that individual to a range of healthcare providers all with a different set of skills and they talk about their perspective on that particular set of symptoms, you know, what their learnings, what, or Tim hates the word learnings, what their knowledge <laughs> suggests might be the right way forward to help them and what it would look like. What what does this treatment in strategy look like for you? What is How much time does it require? Uh, you know, and because all of these things matter, right? Someone who is working two or three jobs to try and feed their family if for them to optimise their sleep requires them doing a two-hour process that, and they just don't have those two hours, then it's never going to work. Mm. And so we've got to really much better understand the individual's needs before we can suggest what they might do to achieve their goals. And so, you know, they're there. They're present for all of these conversations because it's about them. And so you've captured, though, along the whole way, you've captured key pieces of information about this individual at the very beginning uh, and you understand what drives them. You understand why they're there and what they need help with and then you identify what choice they make in terms of how they're going to work with their healthcare providers to achieve their goals. And then you stay with them. Uh, and at the moment, tech is so available to us that you, you stay with them via apps. You know, they're monitoring their symptoms on a day-to-day basis. You're able to tap in and check in with them how they're going, what's been happening. And so you're capturing all of this data the whole time. Every every single interaction is a data point. And some days symptoms will be better than others. But, you know, you've also got in there what the last week looked like for that individual. You know, did they have to work extra shifts, did they, you know, have issues, you know, with their partner, all of these things because every single one of these things impacts on us, on our how our system functions, the choices we make. And then, you know, you, you're going to tailor the treatment. You're going to say, well, this this isn't working. When you do that thing, look what happens. So, you know, together, together you're looking at the data. You know, the medical practitioner doesn't own your data. You own your data. So you can see what's happening. And so then together eventually you modify this treatment so that it is perfectly tailored for the individual. But because you've captured so many data points along the way, you can start to use that to tell the story of the population as well. I feel like that solves everything because the person who matters is at the centre and that's the individual who's seeking help with something. Uh, so it requires small community hubs. You know, you've got community leaders, people the locals respect in those places. Um, so, you know, it creates, it's, it's all just about getting back to community, um, localising, and you and I have talked about that too. I think our healthcare needs to be as localised as our food sourcing. Um, you know, we've got... You know, I'm a tangent guy and I'm going to do it again. But, you know, we've got this huge issue of our aged care facilities at the moment. And that's a real bugbear for me. Um, you know, the wisest members of our society <laughs> tucked away to be cared for by people who they don't know. Um, and they're not being, again, I'm generalising 
some places are great, right? Mm. And it's everything that the people want, but there are too many examples where it's not great. And so, you know, know, we've got this situation where the people that are, you know, kind of my demographic, you know, late 20s to 50s, I suppose, who are busting their ass, working their ass off. Our kids are in childcare. Our parents are in aged care. Um, The other real key thing for Mandala has always been about bringing those two populations together. So, you know, you can't achieve your healthcare objectives if you've got your three-year-old sitting on your lap trying to take all the attention while you're talking to your healthcare provider. Mm. So imagine if where you get your healthcare, there's this massive art space and that's where the kids hang out. Uh, and in that space are the elders of the community, you know, the older nanas and grandpas or whatever, and they're doing whatever they're doing. They're knitting, they're sewing, they're telling stories, they're reading books, they're tinkering in the garden. They're doing all those things that are so rich and valuable <clears throat> and they're sharing them with the youngsters while you're off getting your health care. Mm. I mean, it's so utopian. <laughs> but it's, you know, it, it's the only way. Because then it, it, it covers off everything, it addresses everything. Yeah, and it's it seems to be the kind of thing that isn't necessarily um, facility-based. You know, you don't need to have gigantic clinics with different sections for different practitioners. Like, this is more of a model approach that could be distributed to different communities you know and within that community they've got you know three or four different practitioners that any uh local can go to to kind of monitor symptoms and monitor all of these things um which again yeah goes to that decentralizing of um medicine and and this yeah Yep, you're absolutely right. It's not about building a new building. Um, it's about yeah, connecting the people that are already there, uh, but just wrapping them in data, <laughs> wrapping them in, collecting those key little bits um, because that's the way, that's still the way we move things forward is having the research, knowing how to how to deal with an individual based on the best population data we've got. Mm. The trouble is the population data we've got at the moment is not representative of how we live our lives. We've got to start measuring all the little bits. You know, like you and I have been cold water swimming, right, this winter. You not as often as me because you don't live at the water anymore. Mm-hmm. But I think that that's something that my healthcare providers need to know about me. You know, I spend 25 minutes in 11-degree water every day. Imagine if we captured that piece of data off all the people who do that, and there are a lot of people that do that, and we were able to show that people who cold water immersion, use cold water immersion uh, for, uh, for greater than 10 minutes a day, um, show a decline in their anxiety-related symptoms. Because that's all that's required. That's all you need. But you can't, 
But you can't ever say that unless you capture the data. And I can tell you you right now, if I was a part of of any research program, no one's going to ask me if I swim in the water, if I swim in the bay. That is not going to be a data capture point. But it completely changes my physiology for 20 minutes every day. Mm. So it's just capturing those parts, those parts that make me who I am. I know it helps. I know it's had a huge impact on my mental health. Um, but the system doesn't know that. Mm. And that's okay for me because I know it. So I'm going to do it. But for the next 36-year-old woman who comes de- comes in to see her doctor with burnout, her GP is not going to prescribe cold water immersion. Mm. Because she doesn't have the data. That's why the data matters. Hmm. Very interesting. Hmm. Hmm. Um. All right. I might ask you a couple more questions. Um. Just totally shifting gears. Um. Going to. Uh pregnancy health and women's health around pregnancy um what are some fundamentals that um a couple needs to know uh before getting pregnant good question uh for too long i think we have all believed that you just need the sperm to get to the egg that's all he needs to do Mm. um but we now know that that sperm contributes just as much to the success of the pregnancy as the egg and the uterine health does. Um, You know, I read a great little study just the other day that was talking about the communication between the sperm and the egg and different types of follicular fluid, which is what surrounds the egg after ovulation, different types of follicular fluid attract different types of sperm. Hmm. So there's this whole selection process that happens in the womb. Um, it's really cool, right? It's so intricate and it's, it's awesome. There's so much we don't understand about the intricacies of how we manage to achieve fertilisation. So the things that I would say to anyone thinking about having a baby at some time in the next five years and that's the dream that people start thinking about it five years before they actually do it. Um, it's clean up your life. And that's about toxins, uh, both in your environment. Uh, you know, we're avoiding plastic drink bottles because of bisphenols. Uh, even the ones that say BPA-free, they've just used a different bisphenol. So um, it's still just as bad. Hmm. Um, we just don't have the evidence yet, right? Because there's no onus on the plastic hardening manufacturers to, well, the onus is on them (laughs) to show that their chemicals are safe and the standards of proof are pretty pathetic. Certainly no long-term human toxicity studies are required. So just a new chemical just gets pumped out every other day. Not every, not even every other day, every single day, many of them. Mm. So we want to avoid... Toxicants, you know, these man-made toxins um, because they act like they're called 
endocrine disruptors. So they act in our bodies like our hormones do. So they can either interfere with our normal hormonal process. They do things that we wouldn't normally be doing because they're binding to our receptors or they stop our hormones from binding to receptors. So they really disrupt our hormones. And this is relevant for men and for women. You know, men have the, I guess, the advantage that um, new sperm production happens about every 70 days. So you could arguably, as a man, clean yourself up and then 70 days later you'd be clean, right? And you know what I mean by clean. You know, you could, it's a fresh batch of sperm reflecting what happened, what your state of your health 70 days ago. So, hey, just on that. So that's not like uh, today in 70 days from now I get a whole new load of sperm. It's like across that time. That's right. So across that time you're constantly producing sperm and they're moving through different stages of the reproductive tract. Um, but if you were a regular ejaculator, um, then in 70 days you would have completely different sperm than you had had 70 days before. Does that mm-hmm. make sense? So, but of course, you know, a lot of the things that we're talking about, these toxins and toxicants, they accumulate in our system. So they accumulate in our fat. Uh, and so they can take a long time to shift. Uh, you know, we're talking about food. Obviously, we want to really pick up our diet. We want to maximize the nutrient content of our food. Uh, you know, our all of our body parts are made from the parts of the food that we eat. I think we forget that sometimes. Um, and so we want to have a clean diet. We want to be exercising. You know, we need to be fit. And our diet, too, is... It's not just what we put in our mouth. You know, it's who we spend our time with. It's our thoughts. So we really want to be in the best shape of our lives. You know, we want to be the best versions of ourselves. And there's a lot of talk about weight. Uh, I think body weight is less of an issue when you just think about optimising movement and the food you're eating and stuff. Um, But... We know that men and women who are obese uh, generally uh, have more difficulty with pregnancy than people who are of a normal weight. But, of course, there are plenty of people who are obese who are very successful parents. Um, But just by the weight of numbers, uh, weight does have an impact uh, on many people's fertility. So it's really about cleaning it up, thinking about it, planning for it, um, you know, it's seeing your healthcare provider and being measured for, you know, nutrients and things like that. You know, iron is really important for women. Uh, you know, for women in particular, storage of nutrients is important because the fetus relies on what we eat in the diet and what we already have in our system for all of its growth and development throughout the whole pregnancy. And so if we go into pregnancy depleted, uh, then we come out the other side way more depleted, uh, sometimes dangerously so, and the growth and development of the fetus can suffer. Uh, 
you know, the system, the maternal physiology is incredibly powerful. It changes the way almost all of our organs work uh, and the fetus and the placenta drive that very early in pregnancy, make some really significant changes to our hormones that facilitate transfer of nutrients from the maternal system to the fetal system. But if we don't have them, then it can't get them. So it's being really conscious uh, of, you know, obviously if a baby's all about food, I think food is probably the most significant thing that we can do um, to optimise our health for that pregnancy journey. Hmm. Um, You said at the beginning uh, 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 types of folial liquid? And types of fern? Follicular. Yeah, 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 follicular, sorry. Um, Yep. Like, with, like, when you say types, are there, like, specific, uh, like, parameters for categorizing the types? Yeah, good question. Um, So this is... When I said types, what I sort of meant was there was like a population of 60 couples that they did this study on. And so they did two different types of experiments. They did one experiment where they put follicular fluid from two different women in these little microcapillary tubes, so really tiny little glass tubes. So they filled the glass tubes with the follicular fluid and then they put them in a culture dish uh, with, with media, so just a solution that would keep everything alive. And then they added sperm to that dish. And what they looked at was how many sperm swam up and entered each microcapillary tube. And so the experiment, you know, obviously that was repeated across all of the different combinations of all of the women and the men in the study. And sometimes, obviously, the follicular fluid and the sperm were from the same couple. Uh, and obviously, but most of the time, they were foreign to each other, I suppose you would say. And the interesting thing was that, so obviously in a, an experiment like this, you do the same setup multiple times to see whether it's just a fluke or whether if you repeat exactly the same conditions, so male one, sorry, female one, female two, male one added to the dish, does male one always go to female one, even if we do that six or seven or eight or nine or ten times? Does he always choose that or is it just random? And so I can't remember how many times they did it, but they did it enough times to be able to show that the same sperm always preferred lady one, for example, whereas the other, the same sperm, different sperm, but preferred lady two, follicular fluid two. And the interesting thing uh, for couples particularly who might be struggling with fertility was that sometimes the sperm did not prefer the follicular fluid of their partner. Hmm. And so there's this sort of growing area of research around compatibility uh, between men and women and that some of the issues in fertility might be that there is just an incompatibility uh, in those gametes, in the sperm and the egg. Um, You know, we sort of have women have these two levels of screening of their male partners, I suppose, and the first is when we choose them as our mate. And so, you know, we 
do that based on their reproductive fitness, you know, whether, you know, we want, you know, the interesting thing is we choose different partners at different stages of our cycle too. And so, you know, sometimes I can't remember at which stage we pick which one, <clears throat> but I can come back to you with the specifics, but we might be more interested in a more rugged, strong, strong man at a particular stage mm. versus more interested in a more nurturing, caring tough man i'm pretty sure it's the rugged type of the first half and it's the nurturing caring type of the second half because yeah yeah i'm quite sure of that actually and so you know and so there's this so we make a choice uh in our male partner but then our egg makes another choice uh, at the level that is you know outside obviously of our control and so there can be the scientists are interested in that because it means that they might be able to manipulate the assisted reproductive technologies environment to enhance compatibility. You know, what is it about the follicular fluid that stops that sperm that does not communicate, that prevents that sperm from swimming up there? And can we identify what that is so that we can turn that on so that the sperm will go to that particular follicular fluid to find the egg? You know, that's the kind of thing. But, you know, that that's a 20, 30, 40 year discovery process that shit just does not happen overnight mm. um but you know there's also evidence that women who take the reproductive hormones who take the pill um choose differently when they're on the pill versus when they're off the pill in terms of male partners so there's all sorts of really cool stuff out there um that we're really only just scratching the surface on what it means yeah because <clears throat> You know, as much as that uh, seems like a rather fruitful area for, for research, it also asks a bunch of really, you know, personal questions, mm-hmm. like deeply held beliefs and and makes you go like, well, are there, I don't know, like are there subtle signs telling me that this doesn't quite work and... You know, it it, it it works for half a month when I'm not on the pill, and it you know it it doesn't work over here, but I can ignore it for a little bit of time. Um, yeah, it makes it a really confusing um, space to navigate for a for a, it does. For a female. Yeah, it does, and it's just not something that society is ready to talk yeah. about you know what does that incompatibility mean yeah it means you know at its core incompatibility is usually about genetic mismatch yeah um but people don't want to hear that people don't that's that's um ignoring the whole individual emotional wants and needs part of yeah. that this is my guy and we want to have a baby what do you mean that we're incompatible? Do something about it. <laughs> get, get your dark wizards on it. Fix this shit. <laughs> right. Like it's it's a real thing. It's, um, yeah, it's really tough. Uh, balancing the emotional wants and needs and the expectations of people against, I guess it's our, fundamental environment uh evolutionary 
biology kind of trying to protect the species, you know. But that's not a dinner table, easy dinner table conversation. It's not an easy conversation, right? It's, yeah, it's, it's deep stuff, I think. Yeah. Yeah, because then it, 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 it starts to, like, it can very quickly lean toward, you know, some kind of eugenics situation where the state has these parameters for everyone to to meet and that's how they decide who who is compatible and then it's just those that are on a you know genetic level are compatible all right you guys go off do your family thing figure it out it can you know that's where that's where my slightly cynical mind went (laughs) they're gonna control us i mean yeah Yep, the more we learn, the more we learn, um, the more we manipulate the system. Uh, scarier shit gets. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, I think that's one of the cool things I like about sort of tapping out of the heavy academic, hardcore research space that I was in, because you know it was ignoring all those lifestyle things and just kind of going, let's, how can we override to fix this shit? These people want to have babies. Uh, we've got preterm babies, we've got stillbirth, we've got fetal growth restriction, we've got all of these awful things happening. How can we fix them? But not looking at the why is this happening at the grassroots kind of level, you know? Um, what is the next fangdangle treatment that we can offer? And, you know, I guess that's the other thing that was important for me about Eat for Baby, that it's getting back to basics. Uh, it's not waiting for the latest, hottest treatment. You'll recognise everything, it's stuff we've been putting in our bodies for a really long time um, and that we know is good for us. Um, and it gives us back some control, I think. Yeah. And they're delicious. And they are delicious. Goddamn delicious. Goddamn delicious, boys. <laughs> <laughs> All right, I might ask you two final questions. Okay. Um, these are a little, a little bit more personally related than um, uh, the wider topics that we've been touching on. Um. What are the first three things you do in the morning? I give Cody Papa Cuddle. Mm-hmm. I light the fire at the moment and get in the car and go for a swim. That's a good list. Pretty good, yeah. huh? You'd probably prefer I had water, drink some water in there first. Ah, whatever. It usually comes after. You'll get it in. Whatever. Uh, uh, what are you reading at the moment oh god Uh, it's called The Field okay Lynn I can't remember her last name Um, it's about quantum physics Uh, and I'm only really just getting started but this idea that 
quantum physics changes everything <laughs> about how we understand everything. <laughs> uh, biology, uh, our presence here, how everything behaves. Um, it's hard reading for me because it goes against everything that I know, you know. Yeah. Uh, but that's what I'm doing. That's my journey now is to learn new things, uh, open up my lens. Break down the old paradigms. Break down the old paradigms. I mean, yeah, we've got – I'm one of those people that has usually has lots of books on the go. That's the one that's sitting on my bedside table that I will read before bed. But, you know, we've got bookmarks in several permaculture books at the moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, got delivered a couple of weeks ago, Traditional Healers, a book written by an Indigenous Australian Women's Council. Uh talking about their healers uh, and that they've been healing themselves and each other for forever. Mm. Uh, And, you know, their willingness to share it, uh, I think, is pretty extraordinary given the way white man's treated the Indigenous Australians since day Mm. dot. Uh, they just continue to keep turning up and keep giving and sharing and trying to create a environment where we come together instead of being separate. Yeah. Anyway, so yeah, that's one of lots of books. Okay. And is that is that book Traditional Healers of Central Australia? Yes. yes. Have you seen uh, it? No, no, I've just got it up on the page now. I'll add, oh, add yeah, some cool. info to the... Um, to the podcast. I wondered what you were doing with all your clicking in the yeah. background. Yeah, and then The Field by Lynn McTaggart. There you go. God, you're good. I'm learning. <laughs> <laughs> all right, awesome. Well, thank you so much. You talked solid My for almost two hours. Yeah, I feel like it. Yeah, I feel like, like, like a it. Fucking <laughs> That was very impressive. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, I feel like I've been talking mm. solid for two hours. Yeah. 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 Good. Good. All right, awesome. Um, yeah, thanks for doing what you do. My pleasure. I enjoy it. Cool. Thanks for doing what you do. Yeah, I'm trying again. <laughs> That's good. That's all we can yeah, do, right? That's fair. Turn up. That is correct. Turn up and pay attention. Yeah, good one. Beautiful. Thank you. Cool. No worries, Kit. What are you doing this week?